I brought my new King James. It was an act of faith. I left my new American Standard, and immediately I wanted to minister from a scripture that um, is better in the new American Standard. But um, when you shared that passage in John about um, trusting that Jesus has come in the flesh, would you mind standing and reading that to us again? I want to build on that for a minute. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Amen. So the spirit of the Antichrist is the spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So there's a couple things about it. He says he's implying that we need to be able to discern spirits because many false teachers and false prophets have gone out into the world deceiving many. And he suggests that we're going to discern these by their ability to confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Amen? Now, this motif, this warning of false prophets coming or having already come in the days of John, this is consistent throughout the Gospels, throughout the epistles, both Paul's and the others, Peter's and John's, that there would be false Christs and false prophets and false teachers. I mean, they could not have warned more abundantly about it. And that, that warning is often parroted by many people today. And dishonest, disingenuous frauds use that warning to engender fear and uncertainty in the hearts and minds of God's people. Now, we ought to beware. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing, right? And yet there is this despicable lie that suggests we're going to be left guessing, wondering, is this a false prophet? And we're not going to be sure. And the devil loves that uncertainty because only when the vision is plain do the people run. And only, is, only faith is called the certainty of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So he likes that uncertainty because it prevents conviction. And conviction prevents action and transformation. If there's no conviction, there's no action or transformation. Is that what Jesus taught? That these false prophets and these false teachers or in John's words, false Christs, are so dangerous and so successful that we're going to constantly be left guessing, I wonder if he's one. Is that what the Bible teaches us? Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But that's not where he ends the statement. He makes this reassuring, clear promise, you will know them by their fruits. Period. He does not say you will be left guessing. He says you will know them by their fruits. 
Does he say you will know them by what other Christians say about them? Does he say you will know them because they are different from the mainstream? In fact, he says quite the opposite. In Matthew 7, it's around 21 here. Look at how he, look at how he introduces the false prophets. He says, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them. It's like, beware of them, but they're easy to spot. <laughs> you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? How many of you have eaten a thistle? How many of you enjoyed a thorn bush with a napkin? No. He contrasts something that is prickly and awful and lifeless, that's the key, with something that is juicy and nutritious and full of life. Appearances can be falsified. That's the clothing. He, they come in sheep's clothing. So externals can be falsified. But the false prophets are going to produce something. They're not just going to show something, right? They can wear a suit and tie and still be a false prophet. But they cannot transmit the life of God and still be a false prophet. Now, I don't mean that God can't use false prophets. I didn't say that. He can use false prophets. Somebody recently said, no wonder you feel the Holy Spirit when you're at homestead. They are like Balaam. Balaam also spoke under the Spirit. Now, Balaam had a gift, right? And so he could speak things that were wise and even accurate, mixed with a lot that was foolish and completely false. But did Balaam transmit life to his hearers? Did Balaam put truth like peaches hanging on a tree that people partook of and received spiritual energizing nutrients from that truth? Hmm? No, he did not. He may have said things that were accurate amidst things that were inaccurate, but as a whole, he was a thorn bush, he was a thistle, and everybody knows it. And that is a distortion of what Balaam is and an ignoring of what Jesus says. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You just look at what we experienced yesterday, and you just soak in the life that was transmitted in the Word of God as we heard about redeeming love being our theme. Or you take in the conviction and the grace and the victory that overcomes the world that is transmitted by faith as she sings, don't ever throw away your miracle. Or take it on a more superficial level and look at the love and the laughter and the warmth and the union between brothers and sisters who embrace each other, who exchange stories and give words of encouragement. And all you see is this koinonia, 
this exchange of gifts, this communion of life flowing back and forth. We may have left tired, but that was because of dancing the hora. We left refreshed, and so we did communion two weeks ago. When you take spiritual life from a ministry, it forces you, as opposed from an honest tidbit, okay? Can we draw a distinction between spiritual life and and an honest or accurate tidbit? Do you see the difference in that? You're going to occasionally hear true things from false people. But you're not going to pick peaches off of thorn bushes. You're not going to take figs from thistle bushes. And when you do take figs and when you do take peaches and grapes, you've got to make an assessment. You've got to say, Lord, there is some kind of root that is tapping into your life source that I'm experiencing here. And I've got to make a decision what this means for my life. Is this a tree that never ceases bearing fruit? And I, I looked around, and as we were dancing the horror some of those times, and draw up waters joyfully from the wells of Yeshua, and we just felt the joy of God. It was almost visceral. And I looked around at the faces of some who are so cynical, amen, so bitter, and I thought, are they gathering the same fruit? Because, my God, if they are, I want them to be wherever they're gathering the fruit, but I don't see it on their faces. I see spiritual malnourishment. I see spiritual emaciation. I see a famine upon the land. And then I look elsewhere and I say, God, thank you for your bounty. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'm going to stick right here in the house of the Lord. Amen. You will know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, Jason, what did your scripture say? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But we have to harmonize that scripture with what he's about to say here. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you gotta, we've got a dilemma here. we got John saying if the spirit confesses Jesus has come, and we've got 1 Corinthians 12 saying, Whatever spirit confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is of God, right? But then we got Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Oh, but we've got to remember Matthew 10, where he says, if you confess me, if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you. And he showed that, or as, as Titus 1.16 also confirms, that you cannot confess him with your mouth but deny him with your actions. The net result is a denial. Do you understand? So somebody's going to say, is Jesus Lord? <laughs> and half the buffoons on their way to hell are going to go, mm-hmm, yes. How many of you remember the demon who followed after Jesus and said, Jesus, son of David, blah, blah, blah. Remember? 
Son of the living God. What did Jesus say? Be quiet and come out of him. He commanded the demons not to tell who he was. Sometimes the demons had the facts before the people, but the facts don't really amount to a legitimate confession. Because he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he puts it in quotes, shall enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he's, he's, this is tied to the fruits, okay? He's juxtaposing words and actions. Not everyone who says, but everyone who does. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done mighty, many wonders in your name? Well, these are gifts again. Gifts can be powerful. And God can use even someone who's preaching the gospel for selfish ambition. Somebody can flip on the television. Even a rooster can crow and speak to a man who's just denied the Lord, right? It doesn't mean that rooster is transmitting fruit to Peter's life. And there are many rooster ministries out there that God has used similarly, but it doesn't mean that they have fruit. They may have gifts. They may use those gifts for selfish ambition. And we may be dazzled by those gifts. But we've got to know the difference between appearances and fruits and gifts and fruits. There is a difference. Otherwise, he's contradicting himself. And I'd rather think not. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the, the juxtaposition he draws is, you claimed to have done many things in my name, but I never had a relationship with you. You, and that is evidenced by the fact that you're still practicing lawlessness. Does that make you think of 1 John 2 and 5 where he says, this is how we know that we have come to know him. Whoever keeps his commandments has come to know him. That's how we know. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So whoever hears and does has real substance to what he's saying. So we started in verse 15, beware of false prophets. Now that we've kind of given this context, I want to rewind to verse 13 if you're looking. Look how he introduces false prophets. What is his entree into the warning about false prophets? It goes something like this. I want you to know that I'm all-inclusive and that whoever believes is going to make it to heaven. But there are some who are going to try to restrict the passage of salvation down to a narrow way. Beware of them. Well, that's the gospel according to Satan. How does he introduce false prophets? Verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the way is wide and the gate is broad. And the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in there at wide, broad, many. Can you remember those three words? Wide, broad, many. He's getting ready to introduce false prophet warnings. Because. Why do many go that way? Because. Because. Because they've made a choice. They 
considered a way that was too restricting, too demanding, too difficult. Verse 13, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Narrow, difficult, few. Wide, broad, many, narrow, difficult, few. Think of those six words as juxtapositions to each other. Now, and there are few who find it, without taking a breath, beware of false prophets. In this, he suggests that it is prophets who open gates. It is the leaders of churches who sit in the gates, historically speaking, who represent authority, who tell people, this is the way, walk in it. Is it not shepherds who go before the sheep and open the way for the flock? So the hallmark of false prophets is that they are many. You're much less likely to be deceived by a false prophet if he's not in the majority. If he is the many, if he belongs to the crowd that is described as the most, then you are highly susceptible to being deceived. If he tells you that your faith and your walk with God and your Christianity is something broad and wide and easy, you are highly at risk of being deceived. And if there is a throng, a multitude, the majority flooding through that way, you are at risk of being deceived. Beware of false prophets. And if you look at the ministry and the congregations and the witness that these raise up, and they are full of dazzling gifts that lack the true agape of Christ, and they are full of brilliant persuasions and human wisdom, but you do not nourish your soul on fruits of the Spirit and fruits of life, then you can make an assessment. Thank you, Jesus. Let's transition to 1 Corinthians 12. So we've already established, Jason, that verbally assenting to the Lordship of Christ does not prove or secure anything regarding your status in eternity. Have we established that? Because he says it, and he also says it in the other Gospels. I've just read from Matthew. Look at it in Luke 6. He's even more emphatic. Not everyone who calls me Lord. Okay, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul introduces, he changes the topic, and he introduces his topic. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So the topic is what? Spiritual gifts. He is not going to suddenly change the topic in his next sentence. His topic is this. I need you to know that the gifts of the Spirit must be alive and vibrant in the church. Because if the gifts go silent, the Lordship of Christ goes silent. And if the Lordship of Christ goes silent, you are serving a man-made Jesus. And it's no better than worshiping idols. Because we already know that much, I can go pretty quickly. 
Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Operative word, mute. Your translation may say dumb, but by that they mean mute. And I don't mean the translation is dumb. However, you were led. Therefore, okay, so he says, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Because you used to be led by mute gods. So he, he's saying, I've got to see gifts of the Spirit vibrant in the church so that you don't return to a mute God. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, he puts it in quote, except by the Holy Spirit. So simple-minded Christians will come up to you and, and say, I'm worried that you're a false prophet. Could you repeat after me? Jesus is Lord. And the false prophet says, Jesus is Lord. Oh, I was worried. I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you will be incapable of parroting a lie. Namely, claiming that Jesus is your Lord when he's not. He is saying that apart from the Holy Spirit, you cannot legitimately claim that he is your Lord. Because he is a non-existent entity, or he is a visual or theoretical entity that is mute in your life. How do we know this? Because he says in Luke 6 and Matthew 7, we just read him, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. But he who does the will of my Father. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same. So he's just created an equation. He says, you can't claim Jesus is Lord, that represents authority, except by the Spirit. So he's created this need for the Spirit in order to have the reality of the Lord, right? So then he starts fulfilling the need for the Spirit. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same capital Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same. Do you, see, do you hear the two right there? Spirit and Lord. Spirit and Lord. Now what did Paul say in, is it 2 Corinthians 3? Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now the kairos, the, the master, you could translate it, the ruler is the Spirit. So if we don't have the Spirit expressing his will through people, we can't claim Jesus is Lord unless we're the Antichrist, believing that we have the totality of the Spirit and therefore his Lordship in ourselves individually. Do you see where we're going here? You have to be able to recognize the voice of Christ, the voice of the Spirit, and say yes upon recognition. And that is what represents the Lordship of God in your life. The Apostle Peter is a man of greater calling than the Apostle Paul. He is an Apostle of the Lamb, of which there were only 12. Paul is not. He was symbolically given the keys to the kingdom along with the rest. He was called to be an Apostle to the Jews, and so on and so forth. He opened the door to the Gentiles. If anyone were to ask you, who seems to be the most pivotal apostle of the 12, everybody would say Peter. 
But Peter does not have all of the Holy Spirit available to him in his own life. Only the Son is given the Spirit without measure. But we are given the Holy Spirit as a first fruits deposit. The first fruits are the, is the basket that you bring in. You say, honey, we got peaches, but it's the smallest picking. It's the picking that you're most excited about, but it's the smallest picking of the whole season. So your portion of the Spirit, he has given the Spirit, he gives the, to the Son, he gives the Spirit without measure. But you, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you understand? So we have a teaspoon. Paul has a teaspoon. Peter has a teaspoon. And Peter is in Galatia. And it's about to be evidenced whether Jesus is still Peter's Lord in a real, tangible, visceral sort of sense. Peter is behaving hypocritically. And Paul steps on the scene representing the portion of the Spirit that Peter is keenly lacking that day, and he rebukes him. And in the instance of that rebuke, Peter is able to say yes to the rebuke. Peter is able to call him our dear brother Paul and even honor the revelations that he explains beyond Peter's. There's no, what are you talking about? Don't you know who I am? Where were you? I know where you were. You were holding the coats. You know, none of this. Peter lives out the reality of what Paul is saying because a word from God comes and he submits. If there's no confrontation, if there's no exhortation, if there's no words of knowledge, of prophecy, of encouragement, then Christ goes silent, predominantly silent in the church. And then people can claim, oh yes, I am submitting to the Lord. I am, Jesus is my Lord. Really, when was the last time he spoke to you? And that answer belies the claim. Well, he doesn't speak. But Paul could say, we praise you, brethren, that you received our word, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. Isn't that what he says? Is it 1 Thessalonians 2.13? Paul prays the Galatians, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, if they received him as Christ Jesus himself, were they, creating, were they treating Paul as an antichrist? No. They remembered the words of the Lord when he said, whoever receives the one I sent receives me. So you cannot say you are receiving him unless you're receiving the one he sends. He ascended, but he gave gifts to men. And those gifts are supposed to be in the church representing in bits and pieces and portions the mosaic of Christ, his word and will. And when that's a reality, then someone can legitimately say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Because I'm in a context where if I start to fall into hypocrisy, there's a brother who's going to come along and speak to me. What a comfort. What a reassurance. What a consolation that we're not just speaking it with our words, waiting for a great surprise at the end of time. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God works all things in all persons. Who is working these ministries and effects? It's God at work 
in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This word manifestation is predominantly used to describe the incarnation. The incarnation, we would say that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God, right? And he was the one to whom the Father gave the Spirit without measure. So he was not merely like us. He was God. He was fully man and fully God. Because the Spirit dwelt in him, all the fullness of the God had dwelt in him in bodily form. Amen? But this word manifestation is a special word and it it means to make visible, to make plain, to, to expose, to show, to reveal, and so on and so forth. He says here, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So he alludes to the fact that the Spirit is invisible unless people are acting on its impulse. And if people are acting on its impulse, it's still being made manifest. The Word is being made flesh. And so the reality of the Anointed One still speaking is a prerequisite for our legitimate claim that He is our Lord. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to the other the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another the faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues, But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. His topic was spiritual gifts. And then he says it's important because you can't say He's Lord if He's silent. He doesn't have to be silent. He's alive in His people. And so when he says every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you know, you, said, you, ha- you read a translation that says has come. The Williams will render that is come in the flesh. Amen. It's not a past tense thing. There's, the demons believe that there is one God and tremble. The demons acknowledge that Jesus was the son of the only true God. That's not the saving magical thing. But there is a spirit the spirit of the evil one who operates through the deception and the illusion of self-autonomy. And so an antichrist spirit does not recognize authority outside himself. He puffs up his chest and says, I'm the chief apostle. Get out of my way, Paul. What, ha- what business do you have talking to me like that? The hallmark of the Antichrist is that one who thinks that it all comes only from himself and does not live in a state of submission toward the voice of God that would come in its myriad forms. The grace of God ministered in its various forms. Isn't that what Peter says Let us, therefore, be good stewards of the grace of God, ministering it in its various forms. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the very oracle of God. If anyone serves, let him serve with the dunamis which God supplies, and so on and so forth. The spirit of the Antichrist does not accept 
the brethren, right? How does John say we know the spirit of the Antichrist? He says, whoever listens to us. He does not say to me. John did not say, whoever listens to me, he's of God. But whoever doesn't listen to me, he's the Antichrist. But he spoke of the church as the place where God's spirit is being manifested still. And he said, whoever hears us is of God. Whoever does not hear us is not of God. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error, of Antichrist. Lord, help us, help me to hear us. (laughs) And help me to manifest whatever gift you've given for the sake of us. I am dependent. Amen. I am merely a branch, but I want to bear fruit. I want others to pick life from me. Amen. Lest I be cut off and cast into the fire like those trees who tried to stand alone. Don't even let me be a branch who refuses to bear fruit. Amen. So the fear mongers will speak much about false teachers. They won't tell you that they can be recognized because the way is wide, broad, and many go in there at. And they won't tell you that they can be recognized because they lack spiritual vitality to their ministry as a people, as a, as a corporate entity. And they won't tell you that you are capable of knowing the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. They will tell you that God's sheep will follow strangers and that you might be following one right now. Amen. And they will tell you that the false prophets are the ones who stand in the narrow way where only a few are going. And at times they will say that that's proof enough that it's not of God. Look how few are going there and who go in there at. How does that stand against Scripture? It doesn't. It falls flat on its face in the mud. But Lord, help us. Help us to know how to know. Amen. With spiritual discernment. And help us to recognize ministries that confess the Holy Spirit coming in our human form. Amen. And help us to trust. Amen. That if we're all in that place, then we can say Jesus is our Lord. Not in word only, but in deed and truth. Thank you, Jesus. myself going through Kings and Chronicles and without exception there's maybe an exception if you consider Asa who really fell at the end of his life you know but none of the kings none of the good kings ever had a good son and and uh, I mean every one of them I mean they were followed usually by the worst of the worst, actually, you know. They could not reproduce. You know, the other aspect of fruit, it's not just nourishing. Fruit has the seed of reproduction in it. Amen. It's able to pass on. Amen. And then I read over in, in, uh, in Genesis 18, 19, I think it is, you know, Abraham, I have known that he might command his children from generation to generation 
to follow the commandments of God. Amen. And I tell you, you know, you talk about fruit. Something has been transmitted from generation to generation here because there is true fatherhood in this ministry. And of course, I'm speaking of Brother Blair and the fruit of his ministry. That is fatherhood. Amen. Father Abraham. Amen. I'll tell you, that is fruit that cannot be reproduced by mere doctrine, by, by whatever, tra tradition, whatever it is. Amen. And it's here. I feel, I say amen to everything you just shared. Amen. Amen. And let's keep it going. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.